0: Welcome back to Night School, episode 23. Today, we are shifting gears and moving from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, 1892 version, to Emily Dickinson. Walt Whitman is the founding father of American poetry, so we are told. So uh, Dickinson is the founding mother, and they are very interesting parents to have. And so Mr. Wesley Shantz and I, who I will introduce in just a moment here, thought we would do Come Slowly, Eden, and then the work Arcturus today. Come Slowly, Eden is very short, two stanzas, Arcturus a little bit Longer uh, seems to be based on something like a constellation. And we are again using Poetry Foundation um, as our source. And so I will share the screen now, as I welcome Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, my esteemed colleague.
1: Hey, Good to be back. A a very different poet and a different uh, style today. Also, uh, one that we're not as familiar with um, as Poe and Whitman. This is not something I've read before, so this will be a cool kind of putting ourselves in the students' shoes a little bit here.
0: And you know what's interesting about doing this is that even though I know that we we approach poetry not from a gendered standpoint, but something that one reads in the literature about Emily Dickinson is that one feature that is striking about her is precisely that she is a woman who deals with... uh, sort of women's social issues and the roles of women like as a wife to a husband on her page here in particular on poetry foundation and how that can get into in the way of say her duties as a poet and so what's interesting is that uh the humanities um community seems to invite reading her as a woman confronting the world in a specifically gendered way which is interesting because that does seem like an a, a very real and uh, informative way to approach a poet that disagrees with um, some of the current ideological notions about gender today, I would say. Uh, and so would if one held those notions, let's say no gender existed, one would be closed off to a source of meaning from this poet.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that, that aspect of it does seem to... Uh, impact how people read poetry um, and how the way that poetry is read is different in different time periods in different um, cultures, I suppose. And insofar as we're trying to get at the roots of our culture and, and its values and narratives that seem to structure it, um, I do think it's very important to read as many different voices, um, people from different places uh, and times, uh, cultures, but also from different backgrounds, other sorts of backgrounds, um, you know, to, to kind of get a better sense, a broader sense, um, to kind of check some of our own blind spots, perhaps, and, and biases. And just like, because it's really interesting also to just hear from people who had very different experiences and maybe saw the world in different ways as a result. So, and,
0: uh, yeah yeah no i agree and it would be interesting if at some point i mean it seems like that we want to find true diversity but we also want to use discernment and find that which is truly great as well we want to find a community of individuals who have the best possible and most possible information to convey to us in the best possible or most articulate way that said i think we're going to see uh some cross themes from the 19th century here just a couple of things about emily Dickinson. I'm I am no scholar on her, but I know two things. She's a nineteenth century American woman who is a poet. <laughs> so um that's that's essentially what I know. And um, well, Wes, you've been doing the odds. How about are you would you like to start?
1: Yeah, yeah. And again, so the way we started looking into her work was through Poetry Foundation, what seems like a real reputable and real useful. a resource. And so if you start typing in the search bar there, Emily Dickinson, one of the first things that comes up is a page called Emily Dickinson 101, and it's labeled a poetry sampler. And uh, the subtitle is Demystifying One of Our Greatest Poets. So the editors of the page lay out a brief kind of biography and some of her influences and things. Uh, The first section is about her school that she was at. And the first poem that they link to Um, is called Come Slowly Eden, and it's number 205 in the numbering system that they've got, that they're working from. Um, So anyway, if you click that link, it takes you to the page Come Slowly Eden. So if you're following along, that's how you find it. Um, As soon as my little page... Okay, here we go. So Come Slowly Eden. Um, Come Slowly Eden, lips unused to thee, bashful sip thy jessamines as the fainting bee reaching late his flower round her chamber hums counts his nectars enters and is lost in balms
0: well that's very strong uh and um well the first thing i want to notice are these hyphens these uh these dashes that are moving across the screen we see them both in the middle of the line and at the end of the line uh depending in Every single line, except for the fifth or the very first of the second stanza. Um, another thing I would note is the religious theme of this um, of this uh, poem. It's "Come, slowly, Eden," though there is an inversion of Eden being in the past, now guarded by flame, sword-holding angels, uh, and now being in the future. And uh, there there is a sense of that which is coming, or a second coming. Um, or something to pursue. It is very Dante-esque in that we have an image of striving towards Eden as well as an image of the bee, right? Um, Bee imagery is huge in epics. Virgil uses bees as well as Dante. And Dante, in fact, describes the top of heaven, the Paradiso, uh, with the souls of the angels or the angels as souls. They are souls. He has sort of a uh, Thomas Aquinas idea of how souls and angels work. Um, and Dionysus, they are, Alpicae, Pseudo, or Dionysus. But he's saying that the, the souls in heaven are like bees and flowers and then flowers and bees, and that one gives sustenance or sustenance to another, and then the other gives sustenance to them, and what the sustenance is in heaven, the nectar of the gods, is information. And so it's almost as if what we're doing through articulating reality and sharing stories is creating the sort of magical castle of Disney. or creating that sort of Edenic place that we are always pursuing. And it is precisely because we are always pursuing it that we always have the best possible thing to to do. Um, uh, and so that that's what I do with the first sort of five lines. Round her chamber hums, counts his nectars, enters and is lost in bombs. I wonder if that also is sort of a, a commentary on what a human life is. It's like you sort of, you know go get your nectar you know or pursue whatever it is you want and then you sort of hum around the circle of the years we circle the sun and um well what do you make of enters and is lost in bombs
1: well so the whole thing seems to be a simile right between the lips and by extension the poet i take it um who's speaking and the bee right and the second stanza is filling out the image of the bee uh, and saying what happens to the bee is that uh, he reaches the flower, he goes into it and does his work. And in so doing is, as he says there at the end, lost in balms. And so it seems like a combination of work and delight, which is very attractive to me, um, thinking about sort of the purpose of literature and of education. Those two things, and I, I take this a bit from formulations that Philip Pullman uses in his essays and speeches and things. He talks about responsibility and delight as being the, the co-equal kind of foundations of an of an education or what it should look like. And, and so, you know, the bee is a worker, right? It's traditionally used as a kind of um, metaphor for hard work, but it's also um, the honey, the sweetness, and in this case, the the as yet unrefined sweetness of what's in the flower. And so you could take that to be like the inspiration behind the poem, which you're, you're, you're seeking to um, realize in the work of the poem and that that you can get lost in that. And I don't know that that's a bad thing because meanwhile you're doing the work, you know, it's like, it seems like you get to have both of those things in the space of the poem, which is kind of the flower or the, the Eden here um, that's being evoked. And
0: I do want to ask about the lips unused to thee and whether that means sort of like the use of the poetic tongue or the use of speaking the truth through symbols. But I also want to ask about the change in pronoun in stanza two, lines one and two and then three. Reaching late, his flower, the bee, seems to be the antecedent there. Round her chamber, hums, who is that her? Has he just changed gender or is he sort of an androgynous bee or are there two bees? and then counts his nectars.
1: I'm not mm, sure what's no. happening there. Yeah, no, I, I took that to mean, and I think I read it wrong. I was assuming uh, his, and that probably says a lot about me. <laughs> but um, yeah, reaching late his flower, the bee's flower, round her chamber, the chamber of the flower, I take that to mean.
0: Ah, that's good. That's very good, mm-hmm. yeah. That's must be the antecedent. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why you have to read poetry slowly, right? Your eye skipped over one of these details. And when I looked at this detail, I just could not think of what the antecedent to the pronoun was. And I think that that's a big reason why sometimes people get frustrated and quit reading, right? They just assume something doesn't make sense, but when they think it through, then they learn something valuable and they learn that maybe they weren't looking at this closely enough, which is clearly what was true for me. There and why it's also helpful to read this in conjunction with someone else who you're talking this to because I didn't know that notice that, uh, until you said something or until you explained it.
1: Yeah, I I mean, so she tells you that right in the opening of the poem too is to say is to, to to go slowly, ah. right? Um, and that's kind of interesting because because the lines are very short, and the poem seems very simple as a result maybe, but it's it's definitely Extremely rich and and complex and very carefully structured. I wanted to talk a little about the poetic form here. Yes. Uh, So trying to count the syllables a little bit. It seems like it's very regular. Um, The first line, the second line, I'm counting five syllables in each. Come slowly, Eden, lips unused to thee. Then bashful, sip thy Bashful, sip thy I'm counting six or seven, depending on how you want to pronounce that.
0: So she's very um, different from Whitman. She is exactly. saying more with her structure rather than saying what she wants without being bound by structure.
1: Yeah. and because that's
0: interesting because something she can then do that opens up to her is that when we notice parallels like the, um, the rhyme of the and be, we can also observe a connection between the, uh, capitalized there is obviously God, um, especially given the, the title of the poem, and then B, sort of a connection to the natural world, uh, which Dante does as well as Whitman as well. Uh, that sort of theological or, or divine connection to that which is also natural and mundane.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. And her capitalization is very interesting. Um, again, it seems very intentional and idiosyncratic uh, at the same time. Um, the places where the line length varies also stand out as a result. You know, mm-hmm. just like those capital letters sort of stand out. The the places where the line length varies from the, the regular five to more or fewer, there's one in the second stanza, the third line has fewer syllables. It counts his nectars, only four. It's like you're missing something there. And then the next line is longer, which kind of is makes sense, I suppose. You, the word enters is like leading you into this, this longer and actually sort of, um, in a sense, infinite line, because if, if you're reading it the way I am, that, that, those bombs are kind of an inspiration or a, a, um, delight in the uncreated poem, right? Well then that's, that's effectively infinite and the line is a bit longer. Yeah. But, but you (laughs) reading it can, can get lost as well in, um, and sort of thinking about it. And that's where it leaves you. The poem leaves you in that space of um, of the flower. Um, right. And,
0: and just something about the structure that you, you've helped me to see is that through observing the structure that closely, you can see the meaning of the poem, which is entering and being lost in delight in the flower and the acquisition of that which is necessary for the hive. For us, that's information. So the poem is actually describing the act of getting sucked into a poem right of reading a poem and entering into folk or focusing in on the poem itself and deriving the information from it or the delight and sort of becoming uh numb to the rest of the world for that moment the sort of enrapturing uh, effect of focusing on something and enfolding oneself within it as one draws out from it that which is valuable.
1: Ah, well, yeah. And, and like, the word jessamine, uh, I had to look up, but it it means jasmine, basically. Ah. So it's like, you know, flowers, which are exotic. It's an archaic word for it. Uh, the word itself sounds very floral and has a kind of odor, you know, a very, um, a, a sort of um, a tea as well, right? It's like, it's it's very tactile in that way. and And the word counts there, like, that's what you're doing as you read the poem or writing it. You're counting your feet. You're keeping straight your syllables, um, but that's only like half of the process, right? Of course, the other half is is the fainting, the the sort of surrender to the um, the force of the the idea um, and the and the feeling. So, yeah, right, I find so, it's a great it's a great little poem here.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting how you're describing the sort of balance between uh, intentionality and structure being applied to sort of. Um, the richness of experience or intuition which you are attempting to share and how perhaps applying structure to that intuition helps to enhance the meaning of it rather than to detract from it, which would be clearly why we would ever write poetry, right? Not to be more enigmatic, but to express more information in the most sophisticated way we possibly can.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And both of these, um, so the next one, Arcturus, is his other name, uh, is another sort of science-y poem. So do you want to go ahead and read that one?
0: Sure, 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 sure. Um, and I'll ask you about that, reaching late his flower at some point. Why late? Why late? All right, Arcturus, this is from poemhunter.com. For, and those of you watching on YouTube, you can see it now. Arcturus. <clears throat> Arcturus is his other name. I'd rather call him Star. It's very mean of science to go and interfere. I slew a worm the other day, a savant passing by, murmured, Resergam, Centropide. O oh Lord, how frail are we? I pull a flower from the woods, a monster with a glass, computes the stamens in a breath, and has her in a class. Whereas I took the butterfly a four time in my hat, he sits erect in cabinets, the clover bells forgot. What once was heaven is is zenith now. Where I propose to go, when times brief masquerade was done, is mapped and charted too. What if the poles should frisk about and stand upon their heads? I hope I'm ready for the worst. Whatever prank betides.
1: Sorry, you got to you cut out there. There's two more. Uh, stanzas.
0: Oh, sorry. I I read them. I don't know if they got recorded.
1: Um, It stopped after whatever prank betides. Then perhaps the kingdom.
0: Oh, there we go. Sorry, sorry. I just need to scale down. Okay. Uh, Brief sabbatical. Perhaps the kingdom of heaven's changed. I hope the children there won't be new-fashioned when I come. And laugh at me and stare. I hope the father in the skies will lift his little girl, old-fashioned, not everything, over the style of pearl. Emily Dickinson. All right, excuse me for that. I apologize.
1: No problem. No, no. So these are the, this is the fun thing about reading it off a web page. I think there's definitely a typo or two here too. Um, that one line, I hope the children there, it looks like it's supposed to break and go on to the next line. Won't be new fashioned when I come. I think that's got to be the third line of that.
0: Okay. We can, we can look that. Yeah, we can look that up and, um, because that again, that's something very important about poetry, right? That you actually mm-hmm. get the lines right, so that you can make the appropriate connections between, the, you know, the author's intention and what's there, and actually understanding the poem, right? Because if you're, it's like uh, uh, fixing a ghost car if you are trying to analyze a poem that's not correctly formatted or has errors like those.
1: Well, you know, but that's part of the fun too. I mean, until very, very recently, there were no. Real fixed authoritative texts for anything, and so part of it was, you know, reading what the scribes wrote down and trying to figure out what was supposed to be written. You know, what what mistakes the the manuscript might have in it. And well, sure, anyway, sure but, sure, so. sure,
0: but as we become more sophisticated in maintaining the written word, I think yeah. I, I think we can, especially with nineteenth-century American authors, rather than like say, like someone writing in a medieval codice or codex, <laughs> like maintain their words uh, with a little more integrity but yes i take what you mean with good spirit
1: yeah all right so this is poem 70 um i take that mean that this is a slightly earlier poem maybe um it's much longer than most of the poems i've seen from her but then maybe i just don't know that much about um her forms usually uh it does mostly follow the same kind of form with these um Four line stanzas still has a lot of those um, those cuts those those dashes, which are pretty seem pretty um, particular to her style. Um, so she's writing about this time a uh, like a difference in um, in lexicon, I guess, between scientific words and um, everyday words, and uh, she seems to like to put the words that she wants to focus on in quotes. Um, so Arcturus and she'd rather call him star in the next one. She has a savant passing by who murmurs resurgam, um, centipede. And then she, or someone remarks, Oh Lord, how frail are we? Um, about that whole little scene, right? Um, where she killed the worm and the person walking by said, uh, you know, come back to life or something. Um, So, she talks about the difference between um, looking at a flower in the woods and then looking at it under a microscope, I guess, a glass and and counting the stamens. So there's that sort of computing or counting uh, image there again, Um, like the very different ways in which you can appreciate nature, I suppose. She has the butterfly right that she caught in her hat versus the one that's fixed in a cabinet, like a cabinet of curiosities or or you know of, of specimens I guess um, and and she points out there that when you see it in, inside in the cabinet then you've you've forgotten the clover bells that's its natural sort of setting, I guess um, the next one is really kind of getting back to the cosmic thing that the poem seems to start from with the stars so now we're in heaven but we call it zenith now um it's also been mapped and charted right um and she contrasts i think although she doesn't name it um time and eternity there too and uh maybe in the next stanza she's referring to the magnetic poles and how over long enough periods of time they actually switch. I, I don't know if that was something that was being discovered at that time or, or not. Um, but she asks in a kind of playful mode there, like, so what if they switch places? Um, so what if they move, you know, cause the magnetic north actually does sort of move around a bit. Uh, I think it's cause of the wobble of the earth on I'm not really sure, but anyway, um, she's ready for the worst. And she puts that in quotes. Um, Then she puts the kingdom of heaven and children there into quotes as well. So she's like, these are kind of her specimens, I take it, that she's like standing back from and trying to look at objectively and with a certain amount of irony, like ironic distance, um, that when she's, you know, um, when she's dead, right? Um, When she's in the heavens, as she imagines, um, she's worried or maybe mock worried that the children there will, uh, will also have changed in the meantime from what she imagined they'd be. The father in the skies will lift his little girl, old fashioned, not everything. So there's a paradox there, right? She's, she's the little girl. She's old fashioned. She's nothing, not, but she's also everything. And um, over the style of Pearl, I, I guess that's the pearly gates is how I'm reading that. So like, She's hoping that there's something that's not changing, but again, I I get it, I detect a, a certain amount of mockery here. So I don't know how literally to read that and how much it's sort of her kind of playing around a bit. Um, the the style of pearl also seems to be a pun, right? Because um, style is not just like a physical thing. It's more often now we use that. It's a, maybe a homonym rather, but. We use the word style to talk about a, uh, a way of speaking or of writing, and so you know she has she has a very particular style. I don't know if I'd call it a pearly style. You know, it's not it's not fancy particularly, but it is very artful and um, and in some ways very delicate too. So maybe it's not a bad um, kind of threshold for well, uh, you know, for entering. Yeah
0: perhaps something valuable crafted over time from something that started off as common, which is how pearl is made, right? It's like some sand that falls into what, an oyster or a clam. Ah,
1: right, right.
0: And then it it sort of just clamps down on it and over time shines it up or however specifically it works. But it's something I want to comment on in this, this poem is uh, the Kingdom of Heaven, Language of the Father in the Skies, the Resurgam, I Shall Rise Again, that's a Christ image. Um, uh, talking about Arcturus being depersonified and de anthropomorphized into star from science. What seems to be happening here is something that's happening in the Miltonic poem uh, during the Scientific Revolution and also what Whitman was sort of experiencing in his poem, Song of Myself, a, a change from an anthropomorphized mythological view of the universe, uh, even, uh, you know, theologically granted, grounded from the Greco-Roman sort of gods to, uh, through the sort of, uh, what, Christian gods. And so now, now the world, the heavens are no longer the heavens, it's the sky. And the constellations, which represented stories of heroes, well, those are just, you know, balls of gas. And, um, you know, but she says, Man, what's going to change next? Because this is like the opposite of how we used to think, and so now can we even trust thinking? What if the poles should frisk about and stand upon their heads? She's like, what do we not doubt now? What can we not doubt? And that's very much Miltonic, and comes through in the um in, in Paradise Lost. The what paradise is is the worldview of humans that kept them sane in the world, which had due to the work of Galileo and the changing worldview from geocentric to to um, uh, a heliocentric um, had cast doubt on not only the limits of human knowledge, but also on uh, the foundations of religious uh, experience and beliefs, and also upon whether any religious experience ever could be fully uh, believed in or anything since the most foundational beliefs we had turned out to be wrong in those moments. Um, And so she seems to be contending with the fact that words change as beliefs about the world or ideas about the world change as we look at the world differently we start to describe it with different words and she seems to be cataloging how that change happens and it seems to be happening during her time and she also mentions like the butterfly which recalls to me say the butterfly effect or how things change slowly uh, and like one word might change, but it's evidence of something bigger. You might feel a pain in your side, but it might be evidence of something bigger or deeper underlying, and also, of course, she she showed her knowledge of Latin. I, I don't know that she had knowledge of Greek, but she, she may well have if she had sort of a traditional 19th century American education, which would have featured Greek and Latin um, up through college level. In fact, the Harvard uh, entrance exam required uh, calculus, uh, Greek, Latin, and some other very difficult knowledge that I don't have, but Uh, butterfly, the word for that in Greek is suke or soul. And so again, like with Whitman, religious language perforates this poem, while also a description of the reduction or the transition from looking at the the world in sort of that religious way to looking at it in a natural way, but also recognizing something being um, um, hewed off from our observation of the world in looking at it more scientifically. There seems to be something like a joke, she says, whatever prank betides in us now looking this way. It's like we've been empowered by this way of of seeing the world, but lost our connection to meaning or something because she, she still returns to hope, like Dante at the end. I hope the father in the skies will lift his little girl, old fashioned, not everything, over the style of the pearl, which makes me almost think old fashioned, indicating that she has been fashioned over time, perhaps uh, due to evolution or something like that, or that, each human generation, humans only change so much, um, and so we are sort of the um, uh, the culmination of the longest process that has ever existed—the process of life—and and, uh, and yeah, that yeah. She, yeah, that she hopes that this has meaning, this process.
1: Right, right. the The meaning of it does seem to be sort of open to or or prone to change as well, right? That seems to be the the sense of those last couple of stanzas in particular, right? Like how as you say, how far does this flexibility and meanings and names for things go? Um I also thought it was interesting how she um personifies science yes. at the beginning. Right. It's mean of science to go and interfere. Um you know like Again, I feel like there's sort of two ways to look at that. On the one hand, it's a uh, talking about how differently you look at things when you stand back and look at them scientifically. And, and there is something that's lost there. Um, but I think it's also maybe at least a little bit of her poking fun at that kind of critique, right? Because, of course, science was very much in the ascendant and definitely leads to lots of new... Kinds of understanding and, and new problems that can be solved as well. So there's, you know, there there is something sort of ironic about saying that it's mean of science to go into and, and interfere, um, because on the other hand, its interference brings about plenty of um, positive um, discoveries and uh, and new ways of of solving problems too. The um but the other thing there that's that I come back to too is uh time right she She characterizes it as a as a masquerade um, and it's you know the image of a masquerade you're sort of wearing a mask you're um, concealing something, and what's concealed right is um is your your truth or or something like that or the true nature of things so when we've mapped. The heavens and call it the zenith and this and that. What we've only we've only really mapped the masks seems to be her point there. Um, we haven't mapped the the underlying reality and that seems to be where she kind of goes um, in the last part of the poem. Um, I know a number of her poems are related to death and hope and Uh, Things like that, so I think it's interesting that that's kind of prefigured here in this. I think I'm assuming an early poem
0: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at those lines when times brief masquerade was done Is mapped and charted to and to what extent? That might suggest that the pattern of existence that we occupy might be understood and um, and codified but that doesn't necessarily make the experience of existence any easier. And that even if we do have this superpower and this super knowledge from science, it is a tool to inform us, but does not necessarily, um, it's not like a super tool. I mean, it is a super tool, but it's not like a, a perfect divine going to make everything perfect and easy in life tool. You still, we're still going to have life. We're still going to experience much the same things as we would have experienced a long time ago in terms of like fear and aggression and, you know, tiredness and irritability. Um, and I don't know. I don't know that it. it's almost as if she's suggesting that for all we've done, we've done so little, I suppose that's sort of what you're saying there too. Um, but that there's, and, but I do agree, just to transition points, that she does have a very light tone here, a very airy tone, a sort of poking fun tone, calling it mean. And I, I do wonder what that's supposed to mean in this case, because she does seem to be talking about, you know, a fairly serious change in attitude and perspective or, yeah, a perspective on how the world, on how to see the world. But she's sort of like joking about it as if it's not the most important thing or something like that.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess to go back to the other poem as well, you're pointing out about um, that the bee is reaching the flower late. Uh, that sense of being a late comer um, is, is kind of echoed in, in this Arcturus poem too, right? That there's, there's sort of that whole world of meaning and stuff has been there and is established and now we're arriving to the masquerade kind of late and towards the end even maybe. Um, and we're finding that things are changing, um, that if we're going to understand anything, we need to do it quickly right, before it's gone. Uh, that, that seems to be the sense there. Um, the, the feeling of being a late comer or um, a late bloomer, right, um, implies too that you've sort of, again, like worked at something and and um, are sort of now starting to r- reap the the harvest of your work. Um,
0: right, that's and, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting right. on so many levels, like uh, on, like say, a religious Christian level, the idea of the, the, the tree or the vine with the new branches that Paul brings up, like uh, they're the older Hebrew branches, but now the newer Christian ones, but they partake of the same tree. The idea of sort of, indenturing oneself to a craft like poetry and developing sort of in slavery for several years in order to develop that freedom of will that skill affords oneself in a craft and the ability to maximize self-expression through one's skill. And so it's almost like now late come in life, but now fully free as a poet, as a free expressor or articulator of that, which one has understood and experienced she can, she can express herself, but also as part of the poetic tradition too, right? Like something we run into with Dante as well as Whitman is now we're late to the game because you're the newest player of the game. You're the newest representative or embodiment of the role of poet. And so you're late in that this masquerade has been going on. This party has been going on for quite some time and everything that's been produced has been by everybody who is not you who has been part of the party. And now it's time to contribute or to you know leave your mask in this uh, this party of ghosts that one living soul will someday travel to, hopefully again
1: yeah it's so she you know she doesn't um, assert herself in the same way that Whitman does right. uh, or Poe you know Poe's speaker is also very like neurotically concerned about himself but um, but she's certainly very the narrator, the speaker of the poems is is certainly a, an interesting and um, notable personality within this, um, in terms of form and style, but also just in terms of content as well. Um, and the way that she talks about herself and her experience and how it relates to, you know, by implication to us reading the poem, perhaps being aspiring poets or, or scientists or both, you know, these, these are all things that concern us (laughs) nearly. And so, uh, yeah, I like, I like that way of interpreting it. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of keep going through this, uh, body of work. We'll see how it, uh, develops here.
0: Yeah. And, um, do you have any ideas on what we would like to do for next time, one or two poems or do we want to leave the uh, audience in suspense?
1: Well, the next ones that are listed there are more, um, more that the editors here relate to her experience at school. So things like surgeons must be very careful and faith is a fine invent, or sorry, faith is fine invention. Um, So maybe those two. And if we get to it, there's one that's apparently inspired by or commemorates the death of Charlotte Brontë. So another influence on her literary influence, the Brontës. So maybe we'll get to that one too.
0: Well, wonderful. And I, I do think that um, Emily Dickinson is the first female author that we have confronted, if I'm not mistaken. We've we've read and watched a lot together now, but I, I'm very glad to give her her due and uh, looking forward to reading more of her and possibly the Brontes. And definitely I want to go through Middlemarch at some point, um, possibly when we're, you know, when we're a lot farther along two or three years from now. But I think that would be great as well, George Eliot, and you know someone I've never really given much time to, and I, I know I'm mentioning English authors here, not just all American ones, uh, is um, oh no, her name has fallen out of my head. In graduate school, all uh, I think you and Aaron Desmond were very influenced or very much like this poet. She might or this author. Oh uh, no, what was her? I think she's Irish, uh, very popular with people who tend to be depressed.
1: Um, I I don't know. There's a few possibilities here. Is it Virginia Woolf?
0: Uh, it, she would be great. But,
1: O'Connor. O'Connor?
0: Uh, yes, Flannery O'Connor. That's the one. Okay. That's the one. Yeah, Virginia yeah. Woolf I also have very limited engagement with. Um, I've only ever, ever read the pe- the play by Edward Albee, uh, <laughs> who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I thought was a profoundly ugly play. Um, just, you know, emotionally, psychologically, but, uh, you know, that's uh, – okay that's another author I'd really like to read. So there we go.
1: Cool. Well, yeah, there's a whole, I mean, the canon is big. Um, There's lots of voices in it and it's always expanding is the sense that I get at least. Uh, So,
0: yeah, well, I guess we'll just have Mm -hmm. to do our best to keep up and to report how language and uh, our perspectives on the world and the meaning within it are changing and leave our our ghosts, our Tom riddles in the diary for the next, uh, The next people who will come you know learn from the book of lore (laughs) sounds good all right till next time wes i'm glad to be starting out on a new poet the third american poet with you
1: yeah likewise take it easy you too